and welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and as you probably know, I'm privileged to serve as your host and weekly interviewer. Well into our 150-plus episode after three years and after a wide variety of guests that range from thought leaders, best-selling authors, business titans, CEOs, Pulitzer Prize-winning authors as well. We've been looking for someone who's had a life in public service, someone that perhaps even was an elected official. But as you probably know, most of them are a little bit tainted because they're so <laughs> polarized. So as we looked across the country, who we found in our own backyard fits the bill perfectly because as a public company, Franklin Covey is not political, but we certainly have a passion about our country and all of our country partners worldwide. So today we found the perfect public servant to actually be a guest on On Leadership, and that is former governor and ambassador John Huntsman, who's joined us today. John, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, what a pleasure to be with you. I gotta make clear, is this, am I 151? I, 150 something, it depends how okay. good the interview is. This is the best, this is the best <laughs> intro I've ever had. It's, it's never that you're part of an intro in which you're, thanks for being number 151. <laughs> exactly. But I'm honored to be here, really. Hey. But it also reminds me of, waiting in line to get a date with my wife. Yes. I was like 151 in that lineup too. So I don't believe that. patience and persistence pays off. Well, I met is, your wife and you did well. Which is the early lesson of business yeah, you, here. We both did well. It's very true. We both did well. It's Absolutely true. right. John, it's such right. a pleasure to have you here. You, I think, Great might honor. be our first guest post-COVID. We typically used to always tape live in the studio. And of course, you know, since the pandemic, gosh, hit 10 months ago or so, we're delighted to have you back here today. So this great. elbow this, bump. This is great. We are this six feet-ish. So. And, 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 um. and, and to be honest, you did offer this via Zoom. And my response was, <laughs> I hate Zoom. I, when I have to do it, I'll do it. Can but, I please come live? But if there's a chance to do it live, yes. you're able to create a sense of dynamism, rapport, and creative it's thinking. It's so true. That's so hard over Zoom. That's a problem. It is, a, it is an issue. And the good news is to the audience, uh, uh, Ambassador Huntsman has the antibodies because he and his family did have an experience with COVID we six did. months ago or so. We did. And I'm privileged to host Franklin Covey's book club for bookclub.com on a different studio. And I had the COVID test about 24 hours ago. So mm -hmm. I'm somewhat safe as well. So good. John, honor to have you here. Thank uh, you. Your, your public service to our country is rivaled by no one. You are a two-time governor of Utah. We'll talk in a moment. You are, I think, a three-time ambassador for our country, trade representative. You are a former executive for the Huntsman Organization, of course, which your father, the late philanthropist and billionaire John Huntsman Sr., founded with your family. You have um, uh, been a candidate for the U.S. Office of the Presidency in mm. 2016. Do we have you to talk are, about that one? We can talk about it a little bit. You offered to come, sir. <laughs> and, um, and your philanthropy, your family service to our state and our nation is rivaled again by no family I know. What I'd like to do is have you take a few moments and check your ego, because I'd like you to talk about your, your journey. You have served in, I think it is six administrations on both sides, Republican side, Democratic side, and I'd love to have you walk through, if you will, maybe from the early years as a huntsman and your decision to uh, how you were educated, your role in the company, and your decision to join public service. Kind of walk us through what have been the last, gosh, 40-plus years of your journey. Yeah. Well, you're kind of asking. It's not terribly exciting. Uh, I grew up in a terrific family, yeah. uh, a family that didn't have a business. Uh, a family that was driven to live the American dream. Mm -hmm. So the one thing that I've reflected on through life, when we didn't have a business, when we built a business, now that we have a business and are able to do philanthropic things, is you're given a limited time span in this life. And the choices are yours. How you allocate time, what you do, what you build, decisions you make, who you marry, who you choose to hang with, and this was all kind of part of our life growing up. One of the dreams for my dad growing up in Los Angeles. So I, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, mm. just on the other side of the hills of Los Angeles, uh, kind of mid-range. Everybody in our neighborhood lived the same, had yeah. the same home, and drove a Buick. And I went to public schools. And uh, my dad worked for his uncles in the chicken business, wow. the egg business in yeah. Southern California. And my earliest recollections of business were going around with him to visit customers. And so part of what I learned that has held with me all these years is the customer is king, doesn't matter what business you're in. And I learned from my dad in the earliest years, I mean, I was probably seven or eight at the time. He didn't have a name, he didn't have a business, he was just working for other people. I watched how he treated other human beings. I watched how he treated the customer. The customer 
was king in every sense. And that carried with him and us through life when we built then, years later, a small company starting with one little manufacturing plant in Belpre, Ohio that we bought from Shell Chemical. They wanted to give it away. We had no money to buy it, so they effectively financed it for us. Mm. Uh, and it was all about manufacturing a simple product, which then was polystyrene, which is a derivative right. of plastics, right. and about five customers. And if they would buy our product, we'd do great. If they decided to go to Dow or BASF or someone else, we were done. Hmm. And so for us, it was... This was what, 60s? Uh, this was in, the, no, this was in the early 80s. Early 80s. Early 80s when Huntsman Corp was just getting off the ground. Yeah. The, the story isn't that long. And people, you know, yeah. they think, well, Huntsman Corp been around forever. And, yeah. you know, you guys have all been billionaires for a while. No. Yeah. We, we grew up just... You're just recently billionaires. Average, average people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the co and the company took off. What is interesting, Scott, is you couldn't build Huntsman Corporation in today's world. Interesting. Because it was built on leverage and debt, hmm. and no bank would finance uh, uh, the expansion of a company like, like we had in today's environment. So one little plant was purchased. It turned around and made a little bit of money. We were able to go back and buy a second plant from a large oil company. The great thing about dealing with large oil companies is they have so many plants around the world, they don't keep track of them all, and uh, oftentimes they'll decide they just want to sell this or that because mm -hmm. it's not part of their larger strategic yeah, plan. Right. It doesn't add much to the bottom line. So you can pick these things up on the cheap. And we did. Moreover, you can get them to finance it for you because yeah. we couldn't get banks to do it because we didn't have a lot of equity. You were working in the family business early on. Well, we only had three of us. Right. I mean, what, you know, my brother, my dad, and me, it was it. Yeah, that was it. That was it. Pretty simple. Manufacturing plant in Belpre, Ohio. It had five extrusion lines. It made polystyrene. It yeah. chopped up pellets at the end. You put it yeah. in a bag and you sell it to a customer. Yeah. Um, back then, the television industry in the United States was booming. So the boxes that the televisions, which people don't have anymore, were, were made out of a certain plastic, a resin. And we made that resin. So mm. our customers were a combination of kind of the techie folks, television, the early computers that were as big as a boat, remember yeah. those? Yeah. You know, those were made out of polystyrene for I the see. most part. And then we come up with a technology where you impregnate the polystyrene with decabromodiphenyl oxide, which is a flame retardant that was required. Can you spell that? It's, it's Keep going. Don't try. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because it, it makes them flame resistant. Okay. And so you know, under UL certification, which you yeah. had to have to sell a product, yeah. you know, you had to have uh, a flame retardant base chemical that a television set yeah, or a right. computer out would make. So, so that, you know, that added more to business, and you know, we'd add one plant than another. And what people don't know about Huntsman Corp is how close we came to bankruptcy, hmm. repeatedly. Uh, we used to call it hitting the wall. And we didn't know if we'd hit the wall one week and, uh, and be able to survive it. Uh, it was just a part of our growing up. And I learned that huge human risk is the most important part of any business venture. If you're not willing to combine huge human risk with the vision thing, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So we were taking big risks because we didn't start with anything, and we thought if we don't end up with anything, it's okay. We're right back to where we were. But we might gain something out of it too. So long story short, we lived in, in California the, where the business kind of got its birth. My dad took a job in government uh, in, in, under the Nixon administration. So he worked for the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. I see. Which no longer exists. Right. It's today the Department of Health and Human Service. Right. And he had kind of a mid-range job in the department and stayed a little while and, uh, and then was enticed to go over to the White House to take a staff job. Uh, the guy, he, le he left the company. Well, it was, long, yeah, long, complicated story about the company he worked with originally, his uncles, they had a bad falling out. I see. And it, it followed us for a long time, and yep. it followed him, and it was a very yep. negative thing in his life. I see. Lawsuits and all that stuff. Yeah. And then he and his brother, Blaine, started uh, the first real Huntsman Corporation. And the company was left with Blaine, small, couple of plants at that point, hmm. and dad went off to hmm. do public service, which is something that he kind of always dreamed of doing. His dad was a school teacher. My grandfather was mm -hmm. a school teacher. Mm -hmm. He uh, retired as uh, principal of Los Altos High School in the Bay Area. And uh, my dad had big dreams, and so did the other boys in his family. So he thought public service would be one. He went to work for the next administration, stayed there for about a year, and left. Wasn't big on 
on government service in the end and went back to building a business. Hmm. And uh, we're all glad that he did. Yeah, uh, no his brother Blaine left and became dean of the business school at University of Utah. He was an academic. I see. And, uh, and that early business was sold for, I don't know, a few million bucks. You take the debt out, you're probably not left with a lot. And uh, my dad took some of the proceeds, started investing in real estate and some other things, and lost it all. And restarted it again in the early 1980s. And that's when Huntsman Corporation was formally born in the 1980, early 1980s. And we applied basically the same principles of acquiring cheap from larger oil companies and making them efficient, good customer relations, and uh, hoping for an upcycle. People think of you as a diplomat, a governor, a presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. But at heart, you're really an entrepreneur and a well, business person. I, I had never met uh, an ambassador. I had never stepped foot in an embassy. Uh, you know, I'd met some people in government when my dad worked uh, in Washington for a couple yeah. of years. But, but by and large, we, weren't, we didn't fly in those circles. Yeah. So, but as, the, as, the, as a company grew, so did opportunity. And I was sent overseas as a Mormon missionary to Taiwan, hmm. which was a life transformational experience for me um, in terms of seeing things and experiencing things I'd never imagined before. Yeah. One of them was America's influence abroad. Uh, as a kid growing up in California and Utah, I'd never imagined that my country had this kind of influence in foreign lands. Hmm. And here I was walking streets in poor villages, riding my bicycle in rural parts of a poor country at the time. You became fluent in the language, obviously. Fluent in the language, yeah. and, uh, and, and I loved every minute of it. I mean, you, 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 know, you spend five cents on dinner, and you eat you know, street food, and I loved it. It was, it was transformational. But what I left with was I had no idea my country had this kind of influence on people abroad, hmm. on their government, their decisions, yeah, right. and people cared in those countries about what America did. Mm -hmm. It was the greatest on-site tutorial that one could ever imagine. And so kind of the seed was planted in my head. If ever I have the opportunity to work in an area where I can help my country um, to create greater opportunities abroad, to help grow uh, economies and to bring greater world peace to bear, I want to do something like that. And your first exposure was in the Reagan administration. Was in the Reagan administration. Yeah, talk yeah. about the yeah. six different administrations that you've worked with. Yeah, so that, that'll take too much time, but I'll, but, but I'll start with, with the Reagan administration because uh, while in school, uh, in college, I got an internship on Capitol Hill, yeah. and that internship led to another internship with the Republican National Committee. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of a gopher writing speeches and doing stuff like that uh, there. And they started doing joint events with the Reagan White House, RNC White House events. And... I mean, I, I never met Ronald Reagan. I, I knew of him and was overseas when he was elected initially and remember how the world kind of reacted to all of that. And so I was tasked with doing some of these joint Republican National Committee White House events. And you know, I worked hard and did my thing. And I was approached by the White House advance office that organizes presidential stuff. Would you mind volunteering and doing some stuff for us? I said, why not? So I put off school a little bit, and I started. You're like 22? Yeah, I was 21 at the time. 21, yeah. yeah. 21 going on 22. Yeah. And, and, and I was seeing things and finding myself in buildings and rooms that I'd never imagined I'd be in. It's, it's pretty rarefied, but when you get right down to it, it's made up of a bunch of young people doing that kind of work. Mm. It's, I mean, Washington, as, as is New York, Wall Street, the financial markets, a lot of young people running mm. around doing, doing amazing things. And so that then led to a full-time job. I'll never forget being approached by Michael Deaver, yeah. who was the deputy chief of staff yes, to yes. Ronald Reagan. And th these people were giants in my mind. Nancy Reagan was a big fan, if I remember. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. They were, <laughs> they, they, they were tight. She was terrific. And, and so he approached me and said, would you, would you come to work for us full-time in the advance office? And it's like, well, I, I put off school a little bit. I'll put it off, because where else are you going to get this kind of education? So I put it off a little bit longer and traveled with the president uh, domestically and, and internationally. Wow. And, uh, and you're, you're working with Secret Service, you're working with the communications folks, with the military, with folks on the ground, organizing the myriad things that have to go into uh, by the book, by the second presidential event. And they've grown even far more complicated today than they were back in, in the Reagan days. 
And, and so, I, you know, you work around the president. I watched Reagan behind closed doors. I watched yeah. him out in public. Yeah. And he was like grandfather to us. He was, he was just a terrific human being. Remind us your role in the first Bush administration was George H.W. Bush. Yeah, and, the, and then um, I went back to the company. And it was still small, and we were in some growth years, and we built it up. I finished school, and I, I studied international politics and Chinese, thinking that maybe somehow, some way, I'll find my way into public service doing the kind of international work that I find so You were learning interesting. Mandarin. Yeah, I continued yes. my study of yeah. Mandarin. And I, and I studied Cantonese, too, which is another dialect of right. Chinese. Yes. And, Small uh, side hobbies that most of us pick up in our spare <laughs> right. time. Yeah, yes. this, is, this is called a misspent youth. <laughs> this is called a misspent youth. We won't get into the better parts of my Hard youth where I, where I played in a rock band and stuff like that, which was also what I wanted to do to be a musician. But we didn't make the big time, so I had, yeah. to, give up, I had to give up my rock and roll days, which I loved. Um, but I, I got involved in the Bush campaign locally mm-hmm. and then was part of a larger network of people who they sort of cast a net out for purposes of bringing them in to maybe work in the administration. Yeah, sure. So Bush was elected. I went back and interviewed, then interviewed some more. And they, I ended up in the Commerce Department, uh, ultimately as head of the Asian Affairs Bureau. Uh, which You're was how like, old then? I was 30, yeah. 29. Yeah, and it's like you know this this is really interesting work. I love it, and all of a sudden you're thrust into American policy abroad. You're sitting at a table with people from different agencies and departments who were part of creating America's foreign policy, mm-hmm. and it's like this is where I want to be. This is really interesting, and I, I loved every minute of it, and and stayed for a while, and then the pull of the family business going back and, and continuing to help there, which which I loved. We went abroad and did a joint venture. Mary Kay and I lived abroad for, for a year. Oh, a joint, our first uh, international joint venture was a corporation mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and really enjoyed that. And, and then another job came up that I was approached about and we took that and uh, stayed over into the Clinton administration uh, when Clinton was elected and then came back and was right back in the business and we were growing exponentially. Thing going on for several decades. Yeah, it was, and one informed the other. It was yeah, really sure. interesting. So now you're siloed. You're either in business or you're in politics. You're sort of typecast. Mm-hmm. And, and and I sort of drew from both because it was they were both part of my upbringing. I mean, at heart, I was kind of a rock and roll musician, but put that aside. It was a balance between business, starting up a firm, keeping it going, working in the real world, you know, to make sure the thing didn't hit the wall, along with a couple of other family members. And also serving uh, in, in, in public life, uh, in public service. And, and, and I loved both of them. So we had some great growth years. Huntsman Corporation did in the 90s, where we acquired uh, in, uh, a division of Imperial Chemi- Chemical uh, Corporation, once the largest company in the UK. That put us on the map. Then you read about the company in the Financial Times, mm-hmm. and it's like, wow, this is incredible. Huntsman Corporation mentioned in the Financial Times. And we also acquired uh, Texaco Chemical Corporation, which was the biggest thing that we did. Wow. And that really put us on the map. Uh, and that was a highly leveraged uh, acquisition. Again, something that would be very hard to pull off today. So we brought all these assets together, and it created, pretty soon we had a real company and real revenues and sales right. Right. and lots of customers. And it was such a joy uh, and such a thrill, so exhilarating being part of a company that was just sort of every day learning new things, bringing new assets and manufacturing operations on board, and trying to make sense of it all, uh, up against the biggest and the best name brand companies in the world, which we were not one of, by the way. And so we had some great growth years during the 90s, and that was probably the most important period for Huntsman Corporation. And we also accrued a lot of debt, uh, which is never a good thing uh, if you want a balance sheet that speaks to health. And, and ultimately, we went public in a sense to reconcile some of the debt uh, and to continue uh, our growth spree. And the company, as through its growth years, it was like, well, who's going to do this? And well, we can all have a hand at it. My brother, Peter, who was in the company from the start as well, he decided he, was, he wanted to focus on business full time. And he has done that, still does it today, CEO of Huntsman Corporation. And I had a yearning to get into public service. I didn't know how it would play out, but I had such a desire to follow my dreams and follow my heart and 
and serve my country. Uh, and so some, some opportunities opened up during the Clinton years with some foreign policy groups mm -hmm. and a small group of Republicans who were doing a lot of work uh, for the Republican cause. And um, Bush Jr., George W. was elected then in 2000. And I was pulled in again and uh, asked to consider a few things, including uh, being ambassador to Indonesia after I had been ambassador in Singapore. Under so you were Bush ambassador Senior. to Singapore appointed by George H.W. Bush. Senior. You served into the Clinton administration. Right. Came back. Right. You were invited to become the ambassador to Indonesia under President W. Bush, right. George W. Bush. Right. You're on your way to Indonesia. No, before we uh, formally locked that one in. Yeah. Uh, there was a major security problem in Jakarta at the time. Yeah. Uh, this was a rise of, uh, is, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Islamic terrorism. Yeah. And it, it was being manifest in Jakarta, and Indonesia being the largest uh, Muslim country of the right. world. Right. is fairly active in that regard. People yeah. don't pay much attention to it because right. it's not in the Middle East, it's in Southeast right. Asia. Right. And so the embassy was on drawdown, and uh, family couldn't go. I and, see. And Mary Kay said, no, we're not, we're not going to do it. Do you, that. you declined that yeah, ultimately. Yeah, we're not going to do that. Yeah. And, and so at the same time, one of my mentors in life, and mentors are an important thing to have in life because I've learned more from mentors who have been a little ahead of me in life. I've watched them. I've learned from them. I've worked side by side. And uh, if you don't have a mentor in life, something's wrong. Find a mentor and find somebody who's doing something that you love, that you want to do, yeah, well and learn from them, their successes and their mistakes. And Bob Zellick, who was one of the great public servants in the United States, uh, he retired not so long ago as president of the World Bank. Yeah. Uh, he had been appointed trade representative under George W. And he was putting his team together, and he approached me and said, I would like you to be my deputy. Uh, which you're also, so you, you carry the same title. You carry ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary, which is a, a title. It's a trade representative is also an ambassadorship. It, it, yeah, you're you're confirmed by the Senate yes. as a U.S. ambassador. You carry that title so you can get into the right echelon overseas to negotiate trade deals. Yeah, right. So and it has a military ranking as well. It's a it's a four star billet. Hmm. So you're confirmed by the Senate, and Bob was confirmed as an ambassador. I was confirmed, and and one other, and then you split up the world about in terms of where you're going to lead U.S. trade negotiations. And given my background, I was given Asia Pacific and South Asia, Middle East, and, and Africa. And uh, my counterpart took uh, Latin America and Europe. And uh, I was on the road probably 260, 270 days a year negotiating trade agreements between the United States and mm -hmm. foreign countries, mm -hmm. which is, uh, it's a world unto itself. I mean, trade agreements are highly complicated technical things. And we have them with most countries of the world. Some of them live out their usefulness, uh, and you try to update them and yeah. negotiate free trade agreements, which is the, sort of the top-level trade agreement we have with Australia, Singapore, Korea, several in, 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 in Europe, uh, Israel, for example. And it basically offers the low, lowest weighted tariff uh, uh, getting into a country if you're exporting something. They try to... They try to simplify the tariff and non-tariff barriers that usually stand in the way of international trade. And so you're constantly hammering on your foreign counterparts to reduce tariffs, right. to right. let more goods in, yeah. negotiating and updating new agreements. And it's very time-consuming, terribly frustrating, but where you hit the mark, it's terribly satisfying. Oh, enormously rewarding to entrepreneurs. And, oh, it's great. And, and, and it's great. Yeah. So right. we did the Singapore Free Trade Agreement, which was the gold standard at yeah. the time for free trade agreements. We started and finished Australia. Uh, we started uh, Chorus, which is a Korean free trade agreement, and so we did. I did a TIFA with uh, with India. I did uh, an agreement with the West African Waymu nations, uh, and we were just busy, constantly doing things. And did, is that what led to your appointment as ambassador to Singapore? That was before. So Singapore that was, before was, that. I was, was under Bush Senior. Right. Yeah. And then you go on to two terms as the governor of Utah. Then I had, I had a group approach me when I was trade ambassador saying, why don't you consider running for governor in, in 04? And I said, well, I, I won't consider running for governor because I'm totally unelectable. And why, do, why would I want to waste my time? And they said, no, no, we think that you would stand a pretty good chance. It's an open seat and lots of people are going to line up and give it a go. You, you understand economic development. You've been part of business. You understand yeah. government yeah. service. 
and uh, and you'd bring kind of a refreshing approach. I said, well, I'm not a great politician. I, I'm a public servant. I don't do politics very well. Uh, I'm not into dividing and demeaning people and sort of this is your tribe, this is my tribe, and never the twain shall meet. That's not the way I was raised, and that's not the kind of public service I ever believed in engaging in. You get stuff done by coming together toward a common goal. And, and so we listened and had a few meetings and ultimately decided to go for it. You always use the word we because your wife has been a part of every one of these decisions. Yes. And sometimes she's yes. made the decision. Is that not true, right? I mean, we're not going to Indonesia, John. Yes, because I've learned when I make the wrong decision, I get my fanny kicked. You know, it's one of these things. And, uh, and so we, we sat down as a family and took our daughters, who were much younger at the time, yeah. on a little weekend outing. And we had a conversation about it as a family and, and, and debated it and, and took a vote. And they all said, Dad, you go for it. And it was unanimous. And I was the only one saying no. And I thought, okay, sometimes people read you better than you read yourself. Yeah. And, and so we drove our white suburban cross country uh, in 03 and started the campaign. And it's unlike anything I've ever done. Uh, well, I took family members and we go from city park to city park around the state. We let people know in advance we were gonna be there. And we bring ice cream and cookies and stuff and let people come out, shake your hand and hear a little bit about what's on your mind. And sometimes one person would show up. Been there Some, on a book tour. So, <laughs> right, right. Sometimes 50 people yeah, would show up. Right. Sometimes crazy people would show up sure. and just want to harass you. Been there, yeah. And sometimes people would show up and say, wait, where's the ice cream? That's the only reason we came. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we spent a year, literally a year, going to every park in this state, restaurants, people's living rooms, and just having conversations. And you get a little bit frustrated in the middle of all this, like, where's it all going? Does it mean anything? In the end, it's like, this is how the system is supposed to work. This is called direct democracy in action. This is when candidates appear in someone's living room, in a restaurant, in a, in a town park, and they're just vulnerable. They open themselves up for questions, they have to answer, and people size you up. That's the way we do it. Grassroots. Grassroots yeah. at its best. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and so then it gets a little more intense as you approach the election season. Yeah. You have debates and you have a primary. Uh, you've got, a, in this state, a, a party convention, yeah. which is a, always a very tricky thing. And, and we would make it through and we kept succeeding. And, and ultimately, we went into the general against Scott Matheson Jr., the son of former Governor right. Scott Matheson. Right who was then dean of the law school at the University of Utah, Yale Law School educated, a great human being. I love the Matheson family. And it was just implicit between us that there would be no skullduggery. Yeah. On the up and up, we're gonna talk about the issues, and whoever wins, the loser's gonna walk over, shake hands, give them a hug, and we're gonna walk away friends. And it was a darndest thing, that's exactly how it played out. Hmm. And we won the election, Scott came over to my campaign headquarters, in a ballroom of the Hilton Hotel downtown, teeming with people and the media, and he walked through the door, and we gave each other a hug, and the cameras started clicking. And on the news in other parts of the country that night were stories about the strangest thing took place in Utah. Amidst all of the division of politics nationally, these two people hugged each other at the end of the campaign. Yeah. Well, this is Utah, right? This is Utah. No, I think it goes beyond that. I think there's a sense of humanity that goes well being said. just deeper than, than well Utah. Yeah. It, it comes more naturally to us, yeah. but there, there, there's an aspect of just plain old humanity here that speaks to competition, because in competition, there's always a winner and a loser. I've won some, I've lost some. You have to be able to accept defeat as well as victory and be prepared. I want to talk about that. And I'm mindful of our time. I want to be able to talk about the future. You served two terms, two terms as governor, and I may miss some points here. You become, um, under the Obama administration, the ambassador to China. Mm -hmm. You become the, uh, eventually you become the ambassador to Russia under the Trump administration. In right. between there, you right. have a robust run at the 2016 Republican um, nomination. Uh, 2012. 2012, sorry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, right, 2012. And then um, since then you came back mm -hmm. and you decided to run for governor for Utah. That was unsuccessful this last term. Right. You've had an amazing journey in terms of your ambassadorship, so I want to talk about that. 
What are some of the things you learned about leadership as an ambassador in China and in Russia? First of all, leadership is different in those companies, countries, than it is in the U.S. Yeah. Well, well, leadership locally um, in both countries is uh, is the only English word that comes to mind is monochromatic. It's one person, one party, one ideology yes. in those countries. So when you go there as ambassador. Um, we come from a much different tradition. I mean, in China, it's a one-party state. In Russia, it's a one-party state. And, and we're not used to that. You know, we're used to multiplicity of parties and democracy and action and all of that. Robust conversation. So, and, yeah, yeah. That, that's right. So, you know, I was sent off to, in the case of China, so I was serving as governor. You know, it, it's, it's out of the blue when you get a call from uh, a president who you ran against. Right. So I was John McCain's national campaign co-chair in the election of 08. Yes. And John was influential in my life. We became friends during my career. I have two sons in the Navy that in large part are there because of John. Mm -hmm. They both went through the Naval Academy. Um, and so I was, I was a high-profile part of John McCain's losing campaign in 08. He lost to Obama. So I didn't expect, and I'd only met Obama, President Obama once before, but I got a call saying, uh, I'd like to talk to you about something. And so we had kind of a covert meeting in the White House. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was on my way to Israel on a trade mission. And uh, I, I talked to Rahm Emanuel, this chief of staff, yeah. who called a couple of times before, sort of laying the foundation. And we sat in the Oval Office, uh, I sitting just like I am with you, with uh, a relatively newly elected Democrat, first African-American. Mm -hmm. he, he was a history-making president. And you know, I, sort of, I felt the way to history. This is, there's something happening here that's really interesting, even if we're different political parties. And I, I knew I was going to be asked to do something important for my country, and I knew there was no way I could say no. Because mm. I was raised with the idea that, mostly because most in our family were military, and you, you salute your president. If you're asked to do something, you salute and you go off and do your best. Uh, I, can't, I can't relate today to the what is your party affiliation? And then I'll serve you. Hmm. And if you're not part of my party, forget about it. My sons, who were doing dangerous stuff in the military, they don't stop to say before they're deployed, what is the political party, uh, what is your political affiliation? And then I'll decide to go. When they're asked, they just go. They pack their bags and they move. That's the American tradition of pure service. And unfortunately, that's being lost on a lot of people in the noise and the cacophony of politics these days. So he put it to me, and, uh, and I said, of course, I'll, hmm. I'll, I'll serve my country. And uh, I had to come back then and tell that to the people of the Utah. The citizens of Utah that had elected And I'd just been reelected at a record high. No, yeah. one, no one had ever been right. reelected, right. carrying you every county. You won second term with the highest. Yeah, yeah, we uh, carried every county right. in the state right. in, the highest, uh, yes. in the highest voting margin. Yeah. And so we were, we were flying pretty high. And, uh, and, and I knew that I was sacrificing a lot on the home front by, by doing this. And, and I knew going to work for a Democrat in some corners would make me uh, a pariah. Uh, you knew that, yet you did it because you felt it was the right thing to do for the nation. I, I could not live with myself if I had said no. Hmm. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I just couldn't have lived. Went to China for how many years? So we were in China for two years. Yeah. And it was, you know, sir, I, I've lived in Asia several times. And, uh, both in business and in public service, uh, and earlier on as, uh, as a missionary. Um, dealing with China is something that's altogether different in diplomacy uh, and business, because for the first time in a hundred years, based on the evolution of the global order of nations, we now have a rival. We have a rival economically, we have a rival militarily, we have a rival when it comes to techn technology advancement, and for the first time, they're going global. They're taking their elements of power. We have different values than they do, and right? What's that? We have different values. Uh, we do. Values are different. We do. That's not Chinese to say values. that those are bad. You right. know, when I hear people condemn right. the, the Chinese for this or that, it's like, well, obviously, you've never been there. You've right. never lived among they're them. That's why I said different. Right? Because yeah. they're, they're beautiful and talented people, yeah. and they have a different set of values. Uh, they're very traditional. They're yeah. very family-centric. They're right. very community-centric. Yeah. You know, the Russians are the same way. 150 million beautiful, talented people. I hate their government. I think it totally is a disservice to the people who want a better life. Um, but the people are terrific. And it was a great honor serving among them, trying to help them better understand our country and trying to problem solve some of the issues that 
hopefully it won't lead to war ultimately. Sean, what, you have the highest level of security clearance that someone in the nation can have. So there's things, of course, you can't share. Uh, you were in Russia for how long? Two years. For two years as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want the viewers and listeners here to know about the future of China as it relates to being an American citizen? What should, be aware, what should we be aware of 2030? What does 2030 look like with America and China? It's interesting, Allies? Scott, that you should, you should note 2030, because I think the um, time horizon between 2020 and 2030 is probably the most important decade this world has faced, maybe since the one leading up to World War I. So again, I go back a little over 100 years ago, because the world was transforming itself back in those days, with the UK being the primary power, being challenged in Europe by Germany. So whenever there has been, and this goes all the way back to, to Athens and Sparta, and the great philosopher Thucydides wrote about this. He used to call it the, 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 well, we call it today the Thucydides trap. Whenever there's a rising power, accumulate, a rising nation, rising power, accumulating um, influence on the world stage, bumping against an existing global order, war typically breaks out. And you can go back and trace the last, say, 500 years of world history. You just described the Chinese-American relationship. This is exactly what's happening. So we, we have a rising power. And I've been directly connected in U.S.-China relations for probably 40 years. Mm -hmm. So I've watched this evolution from China that was nowhere on the radar screen to where it is today, pretty much a rival in in every element of power. And and they're bumping up against an existing order. In this case, it isn't Germany bumping up against the U.K. like it was pre-World War I. This is the new world. And so from 2020 to 2030, we're going to see the manifestation of this rivalry that has been created, which is totally natural. I mean, countries are very competitive. They want to win. The key and what diplomats work on is how do you solve problems, work on issues, trade and engage, short of going to war? So diplomats effectively are soldiers not carrying guns. And if we fail as diplomats, that's when people like my son step in and unfortunately have war. So the only reason for war is because diplomacy fails. And there should never be instances where that is the case. You but, are concerned about the future between the U.S. and China. Well, well, I am. I am for a lot of different reasons. And so, so China now sits on a world stage which has largely been un, unseen by China in its 5,000 years of history. But this is exactly where, if you were to read their playbook, they thought they would be. They've always seen themselves as the middle kingdom. So the, the Chinese character for China is a world with a line through the middle. That line through the middle indicates their being the center of the universe. So this isn't a new phenomenon for them. In fact, if you look at probably 18 of the last 20 centuries, China has been the predominant economy of the world. They were overtaken by economies of Europe 300 years ago. Then the UK, of course, became dominant. And then the United States became dominant. So China sees this as as returning to their rightful place of global leadership. It's a very different model of global leadership because typically they don't expand to the rest of the world like other empires have, the British, the French, the Russians, the Americans. They pretty much stay within their neighborhood. Um, and that's just, it's born out of a lot of different things. That's going to change. It's, it's, it's a, the tributary state mentality. You come to us. So this has been their philosophy. We don't go to you, you come to us. And that's, yeah. that's what they're doing again. So what happens when China all of a sudden has a 25 trillion dollar GDP, same as ours. What happens when their military capacity, not globally, but certainly in the Western Pacific, is greater than ours? What happens when technology advancement, 5G, biotechnology, financial technology, defense technology, begins to exceed our own capability, which is exactly where we are. Yeah. Pivot to Russia, Russia 2030. Russia 2030 will probably not have Putin as a leader. So Putin is... He's been in for 20 years. He's been in for over 20 years. Right? He, he just changed the Constitution recently. Right. He should right. be out in 24. So under the Russian Constitution, yeah. he's term limited. Yeah. But he changed that, of course, conveniently. So You've met him. So, yes. Numerous times. <laughs> yes. What was that like? Uh, he's an un- unassuming man. He's yeah. short. Yeah. Uh, he has a sense of humor, yeah. which is quite, quite funny. Uh, and he's a master at the game. He's met every world leader for 20 years and before that. Um, he meticulously reads from his prepared notes. 
and he puts you in a box. He knows exactly what he wants from you, and he'll tee up the meeting in a way that puts you in a box. Are you concerned about the future of Russia-American relations? I'm concerned more about U.S.-China relations yeah. because uh, the elements of power that China has right. are considerably more right. than in Russia. So right. 1.4 billion people versus 150 yeah. million people. Right. The Ru Russian landmass is huge from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok. You've got 11 time zones, 150 million people. You've been to all of them? Uh, I, I've been to a lot of corners, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of corners, a lot of cold corners of Russia. Yeah. Um, so if you look at it this way, the United States is the only superpower in the world today. There are two great powers. China's a great power, soon to be a superpower. It's a great power economically and militarily. Yeah. Uh, by geographic location, it connects with all the major markets of the world. It has natural resources. It has a stable government, whether we like to recognize it or not. The party that has been created since 100 years ago yeah. is a stable entity. 83 million members belong. Uh, Russia, on the other hand, um, has had its ups and downs. So if you look at the 20th century, Russia lost 70 million people, either through wars, yeah. revolutions, upheavals, invasions. So talk to somebody who's old enough to appreciate what it means to live in a country that has lost 70 million people. And you'll talk to someone who sees the world a little differently yeah. than you do. Most people may not know this, but um, recently you've joined two boards. Mm -hmm. You are on the board of directors for Chevron, <laughs> and also the Ford Motor Company. Uh, I'm mindful of our time as well. We have about five minutes left. Um, what do you think the future of energy looks like from your perspective as being on the board of Chevron? What well, should we know? I I'm on both boards, not only because they're great companies, and, and I love both their CEOs. Bill, Bill Ford's been a friend for a long time, and he's, he's a terrific American business leader. I think the two most important revolutions that are going to occur in our country over the next uh, couple of decades Aside from just technology advancement, we're going to see that uh, exponentially. That, that'll be nothing new. The energy revolution will be one of them. How we power ourselves, how we fuel our buildings, how we fuel our transportation. So we've gone from burning whale blubber. We used to kill whales until they were almost extinct late in the 19th century to the discovery of kerosene, which gave rise to Standard Oil Company, which was a Rock the Rockefeller Trust that... Theodore Roosevelt came in and broke up, and that, of course, created Chevron and Exxon. Mm -hmm. They're derivatives of, of uh, Standard Oil. Mm. And so from kerosene, you then have different forms of gasoline, and, of course, we have natural gas, which is a cleaner burning fuel by probably 50%. So the key to the energy revolution and what all the major energy companies are in a race to do is how do you clean up your act? How do you deal with particular tailpipe emissions? How do you deal with methane emissions coming out of the manufacturing process? How do you get to cleaner burning fuels? How do you get to renewable fuels ultimately? And so there's going to be a race technologically to see how that happens. The energy people have the balance sheets to be able to engineer that revolution. You see America being a strong competitor in that? I, I, whoever owns energy technology going forward, is going to own the world. Well said. Because every home, every city, every country relies on energy, number one, to, to, yeah. to, to, to maintain their viability. Talk about Ford. Uh, we see this, we see the rise of Tesla, mm -hmm. and we see it, you know, the, a, a different social conscience, right, around mm -hmm. um, gasoline versus you know, sure. renewable energy cars. What does the future of Ford and transportation look like for us? Well, I think two things. I think you have, you have electrification, which is going to happen in the next 10 years like we've never seen it happen before. Um, and that's uh, driven Across a lot. Across the broad spectrum of consumer automobiles. Yeah. It'll be hard-pressed to buy a car that's gasoline run 10 years from now? Well, just, just imagine this challenge. So 98% of the cars sold by GM and Ford are, are ICE engines, internal combustion engines, or hydrocarbon driven. So taking 95% of your fleet and your profitability, your balance sheet, and converting it in an almost revolutionary way to a type of technology that is still not totally proven. I mean, we're putting battery packs in cars, and we've been experimenting with this at Ford for a long time, and now we're getting pretty good at it, evidenced by the new Mustang Mach, Mach right, E, yeah. which is a phenomenal car. Yeah. And it's giving you know the Tesla Y version a real run for its money. And that's the first manifestation. Well, when the F-150 becomes electric, which is going to happen, we'll have a hybrid out this year. Um, Talk about revolutionary change when right. the pickup trucks start right. becoming right. Uh, electric. So I think we're going to see in 10 years 
uh, a migration toward electrification and uh, autonomous driving, which is a driverless vehicle. So already in one part of the country, Ford Motor Company uh, is experimenting with, with delivery vehicles that are completely autonomous. Uh, they don't have drivers. And we're going to start seeing more and more of this. But it's going to be slowed down substantially by regulatory measures taken by yeah. cities, states, yeah. and, and the nation. Yeah. And so that, that's going to be a longer haul. And the technology is very complicated and extremely expensive. And you don't have a lot of balance sheets that can afford both money into developing electrification, which is going to require a lot more money, and, and simplification to get the battery pack down in size, to get the power up, and to get the cost down as well. But autonomous driving, similarly, maybe even more expensive over the longer term. And, and it's coming. It, it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure in every part of the country, because listen, the American dream, as expressed by Henry Ford, is people getting in cars that they can afford, made out of great American products, yeah. to enjoy yeah. the vistas and venues of the country. Yeah. John, some final leadership questions. What did you admire most about President Obama's leadership style? His ability to speak in a way that unified people. So I don't think in recent history we have had as many cross-currents between people of different ideologies and backgrounds who came together in pursuit of common ground. And, and I give him credit for that. He actually spoke in terms that brought people together. He had his own ideological views, but the very fact that he would put Republicans in his administration right, right. and try to cross the divide, uh, I, I think is, uh, was probably the thing hmm. that I admired most about him. What did you admire most about President Trump's leadership style? So there, there's a lot to analyze about President Trump. Yeah. So he, brings, he brought um, the first real business attitude to the presidency. Mm. So if you can imagine uh, a CEO, in this case, uh, a real estate developer right. from New York City, right. now that's a pretty interesting breed of people because right. they're tough and they, they brook no nonsense at all mm -hmm. and they do it their way and, and they fight it out in the alleyways. So he, he brought that mentality to the presidency and that was very, very unique because he expected things to be done. He expected things on his desk. He didn't speak the language of politics and that made a lot of people upset, mm -hmm. particularly the media. And he didn't always get along with Congress because he was sort of uh, a, uh, a, he took a singular approach to leadership as opposed to building coalitions, which I think if he were to go back and analyze his presidency, he would say, I should have built more coalitions. Yeah. I could have gotten more done and my ideas could have maybe reverberated and been better understood if I had built coalitions across certain boundaries that, that didn't come naturally to him. Let's talk about your family briefly. Your father and mother, of course, established the Huntsman Cancer Center in Utah that has been responsible for saving countless lives, including my handyman's life, including Franklin Covey's director of public relations, Deborah Lund, who's sitting off camera, who had a, uh, is a breast cancer survivor and was uh, uh, the fortunate beneficiary of the technology and the love and the compassion of the Huntsman Cancer Institute. Your family's philanthropy is, um, knows no bounds. Your children have been very successful. Talk a bit about, um, we've got a couple of minutes. You've got how many children? Seven. Seven children. Yep. Uh, your daughters have been wildly successful. Your youngest daughter is in college, is that right, right now? She's uh, our next to youngest. Next to youngest yeah. daughter is in college, yeah. yeah. Your daughters and your sons all have gone on to public service and they've been in the media and- uh, Military. Military, exactly <clears throat> right. Uh, your wife is your partner. What does the future for your family look like? There's multiple millions of people right now waiting for me to finish this interview <laughs> and ask you. You had a run for the US presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, you made it a certain distant, distance and then stopped, obviously, like many candidates did. Is that back in your horizon? Probably not. You didn't say but, not, you said probably not. <laughs> but you, you never say no. Right. Because I've come to find that, like business, Politics, and this is a big English word that I love, serendipity. So you can't always forecast where you're going to be. Yeah. In business, you can try, you can develop a strategy, but sometimes you find things along the way. There's that, an emergent strategy. That there's a different, for the better. Yeah, right. And, and politics, if you're in public service, it's the same thing. If, if you're somewhat good at it and if you've got a good foundation, you've got a few people who are willing to take a ride with you, if you have knowledge of 
important foreign policy things and experience there, people are going to kind of put you forward. And then you have to decide, do I want to take the risk? Yeah. And then you reflect back on those early Huntsman Corporation lessons. Without risk, there is nothing. Hmm. That's kind of the starting point. You're a risk taker. Uh, I'm maybe too much, hmm. but but I love taking risks. And maybe that's part from racing motorcycles earlier in my career, where you crash and you hurt yourself. You get up and you keep moving. Your family and could be supportive of another campaign for the presidency. I it, we you know that would take a lot of talking through. Yeah. But, but you know what? It, it, this is probably most profoundly important. You, after you've been out there and, and tested the market a little bit, you have to see if you're the right person at this moment in history. Yeah. And if you're going against the currents of history, pack your bags and go somewhere else. Because there, there are very distinct cycles of history. And if you play to, if they play to your advantage as a person, as a public servant, then you're going to be in the mix. And Trump rose up for a reason. Uh, he rose up because there are a lot of people in this country who feel that the American dream has been out of their reach, mm. that the American political system has a deaf ear when it comes to listening to their concerns, uh, that the system is rigged against them. And I think there's a lot of truth to all of the above. And that gave rise to the change in the paradigm. We need someone who can shake it up. And I think Trump would have been a lot more successful had he done a few basic things that he didn't do mm. on yep. the communication yep. side and yeah. management-wise. But that we'll let the historians, the historians figure that one out. But there are very distinct cycles. And, you know, you may be caught up in a cycle, you may not. But serendipity is kind of where preparation meets opportunity. Yes. And you see it in business yeah. and you yeah. see it in politics. You see it in any endeavor. I think Oprah calls it luck. <laughs> when preparation meets yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people call that luck, but you know, if they scratch a little deeper, they'll see that yeah. it's more than luck. There's there's a little there's something a little more methodical yeah. to it. John, that you would take this hour and join us. I'm so grateful. We could talk for hours more. Your knowledge of world history is unrivaled. Your, your wife and you have been uh, great citizens of Utah and service to our nation. Thank you on behalf of well, all Americans it's a great for your family service. I wouldn't be here without Mary Kay. I wouldn't be here it's without true. my kids. It's true. It's yeah. true. Your wife is a gem. Maybe we'll have you back someday. Terrific. Awesome. John Hudson, thank so you much. for joining us. COVID, Good to be with you, COVID Scott. Shake. And what an honor to have former governor and ambassador John Huntsman join us. And potentially, if serendipity hits, future presidential candidate we'll see. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you back here next week for a new interview on Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Mm -hmm.